0: We're talking about this morning malice in a mixed family. We hear a lot today about blended families, but this is not a blended family. This would be a mixed family where there is one husband and a number of different wives and sons and daughters all living in the same household. Not a good combination. So after our introduction, we'll take a look at the preference of the father, Jacob, the malevolence of Joseph's brothers, the insistence of Reuben, and the providence of God. Does your family have some rough spots? Maybe in your family, your immediate family, possibly in your extended family. If that's the case, don't worry, God can still use you. And He wants to use you. And we don't just sit back and say, well, that's going to be okay. God can do it anyway. He did it in other people's lives. No, He tells us what we need to do in the New Testament. Second Timothy 2.21 If a man cleanses himself from the latter, that would be ignoble purposes in the previous verse, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the Master, and prepared to do any good work in his book, The Schemer and the Dreamer, God's Way to the Top, Louis Palau observes that a number of successful characters in the Bible were called by God from their youth. And you can think about uh, many of them, Moses, Samuel, David, Josiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Timothy in the New Testament. And many of these had to overcome a difficult background in their family and obstacles that were in the way in their lives so in today's lesson we see two other men who were called of God in their youth Jacob and Joseph in their younger days there were a number of similarities between them they were both the favorites of their parents that's not a real good way to start out in a family as we'll see Their parents were God-fearing, but weak and immature in many respects. They both experienced troubles with sibling rivalries, Jacob with Esau, you remember, and Joseph today with his brothers. They both were taught about God when they were young, promising a productive life for the sake of God's kingdom. And they both had dreams and visions. But that seems to be where the similarities end. One decided to grab hold of his own life and try to force what he wanted on circumstances, people, and the things that were going on in his life. The other, in spite of very harsh adversity, was willing to trust the Lord and watch His plan unfold over the years even in his life. So we see a contrast between these two men as they both come to a later season in life. Genesis 37, 1 and 2. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger. In the land of Canaan, these are the generations of Jacob. The word Toledoth, generations, that we see in Genesis, is used to mark 11 divisions. And this is the last of the divisions where it says the generations of Jacob. It means a record of origins or a record of events. Ever since chapter 25, we've been examining the details of the life of Jacob. And we're not finished with him yet. But today we come to the very interesting story of his well-known son, Joseph. Now you remember that Jacob and Esau were twins and when they were born, Jacob had a hold on Esau's heel. The heel grabber as named Jacob, the heel grabber or the supplanter. And you've got to watch out for heel grabbers on the ladder of success because they're the ones that will reach up and grab the one up above them by the heel and pull them down and pass them up, even as Jacob did Esau when he supplanted him in his rights as the oldest son and cheated him out of his birthright and his blessing. In chapter 36, we didn't really cover it in our messages, but you can see Esau departing from Canaan and moving way down to the land of Seir, which is south of the Dead Sea, sometimes known as the land of Edom, which is another name for Esau. So he's out of the picture now, and Jacob is in the promised land, but he doesn't own much of the promised land. Neither did Abraham or Isaac. But they had faith that God would give that land to their people, their descendants, and that He would make a mighty nation out of their family. Now today, one reason this is such an exciting study is we're going to get a glimpse today as to how God is going to take a small family, small in terms of what it takes to have a nation, large in terms of perhaps families today, but just one family, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, the household, and He's going to figure out a way that he had figured out before the foundation of the earth, but reveal to us how he's going to grow that family into a mighty nation and how he's going to protect them along the way. We're not finished with Jacob. We'll come back to him. But the story of Joseph, we'll see, is one of the best examples of the sovereignty of God in all of the Scripture. The Preference of the Father, Genesis 37 two. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. According to the record of Scripture, Joseph was a young man of godly character. In Genesis 39 we see that the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. Even as a slave he prospered spiritually and it was evident to those who were around him. And we've noted before that the Lord was with Joseph because Joseph was with the Lord. How did he get to be a man of godly character? You're not just born a man of godly character. How does a young man become a man of godly character. Well, according to the New Testament, he has to be discipled. And it looks like there was a spiritual kinship between Jacob and Joseph because he was his favorite son. And it seemed that Jacob discipled his son Joseph more so than all the rest of the brothers. How would that apply to us if you wanted to rear a godly son today? Well, I would suggest that the greatest source of godly character training is the home-taught Bible. I'm not talking about home school necessarily, but home education. Everybody is in home education, whether good or poor. And if we're teaching young people the Bible in the home, that's where it's going to really stick, because that's where they see whether or not it makes any difference in the way you live in the family. Now you might say, well, we need to take them to church. That's exactly right. But see, you have got me by 168 to 2. Maybe two hours a week they're in church or some type of Bible study. But all the other time, 24-7, they would be in the home or probably something connected with the home. So the narrative opens with Joseph out shepherding his father's flock with some of his brothers. These were sons of Bilhah and of Zilpah, and that would have been Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, some of the half-brothers who were more his age. We don't know where the older brothers were at this time, but they were out there learning to be shepherds. Too bad for Jacob. He had been bitterly disappointed by his three oldest sons. Do you remember Reuben got into immorality? Simeon and Levi murdered all the male population of the city of Shechem. And Judah, the fourth born of Leah, is going to get into trouble in the next chapter, 38, coming up. But Jacob, as a dad, I'm sure, is kind of sad over the behavior of his sons. But now he gets another bad report on the younger sons. And it seems like uh, Joseph is the one that he's counting on because of his character to watch over these guys and see what they're doing. So Joseph, I'm sure, was accurate in the bad report that he brought back at age 17. The malevolence of his brothers. There's the verse that talks about the Lord being with Joseph and that was the reason for his success. The malevolence of Joseph's brothers, why did they hate him so intensely? You can see some of the reasons in verses 1 through 5. He was their half-brother, the same dad, but a different mom. And sometimes a mixed family is a mixed-up family. We would call it a dysfunctional family, where there is conflict, there is a lack of purpose, There may be immorality. There are all kinds of things going on that shouldn't be happening in a family. But God can work through all of that if we're willing to turn to Him. That's the good news. It seemed that Joseph was prone to tattle on the brothers because his dad put his trust in him, so he was always asked for an account, and it looks like he didn't mind giving it. Father loved Joseph more than all his brothers. Maybe that was purposefully that he let that be known, or maybe unwittingly they could just see that Joseph was the man in that family. There was one thing that they could obviously see that indicated Jacob's love for him. He gave him a special coat to symbolize his favoritism. Now, we don't know really too much about this coat. The word colors is somewhat uncertain in the Hebrew. But evidently, it was the type of garment that a supervisor or an overseer would wear. It may very well have been a colorful garment. But it identified Joseph as the favorite son. None of the other brothers had this type of garment as a gift from their dad. So every time they saw that coat, it reminded them of their dad's favoritism. And that was not a good thing. Joseph was also the son of Jacob's old age and the son of his favorite wife, Rachel. And then Joseph had a dream. And this dream, in the dream, he and his brothers were binding sheaves and his sheaf stood upright and his brother's sheaves bowed down to his sheaf. Then things went from bad to worse. Something else happened that caused his brother's jealousy index to shoot right out the top of the chart. Verse 9, Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream and behold the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. They got the message a second time. And in the King James, the word obeisance means to bow with homage. Not exactly what the brothers wanted to hear. Suppose uh, Gregory Pratia came to the breakfast table one morning and said, hey gang, gather around. I had a dream last night. And I want to tell you that you can bow down to me now or you can bow down to me later. Whatever you choose. Now, how do you think they would respond to that? They would say, Gregory, what have you been putting in your Kool Aid, man? You must be out in space somewhere. Bow down to. And see, that's kind of the way it was. And especially with older brothers, but it wasn't any joking matter to them. They hated him for that dream. And when he revealed the second dream, oh, that was even worse. Now, what does that um, proverb say, discretion is the better part of valor? Uh, Joseph must have been a brave guy. But it would have probably been better if he kept his dream to himself. Because I think God gave him that dream for his own encouragement and not for his brother's edification. It just certainly didn't encourage them very much. So we see now that in, in this second dream... It's not exactly historically accurate because his dad said, shall your mother and I bow down to you. Uh, Rachel, the mother, has already died, but dreams are not necessarily historically accurate. And of course, Rachel lived on in the memory of Joseph and his dad, Jacob. Now in verse 12 in your text there, we come to a rather strange development and we wonder why this happens. But we're going to see exactly why this took place. The brothers were out shepherding the flock and they decided to go back to Shechem. Do you remember what happened at Shechem? Dinah got into trouble at Shechem and Simeon and Levi killed off all the men of the city. And now the brothers decided to go back there in verse 12. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Now Shechem is 50 miles north of Hebron where they live. So they're moving to the outer limits of the range, I suppose, of driving a flock when you got to come back the other way. Why would they want to go there? Maybe they wanted to see some of their old favorite places from when they lived there. Maybe they were just bold guys and weren't afraid of what might happen to them if they went back there. We don't know the answer, but that's where they went. It's no wonder that Jacob would have been concerned about them going back to that area. But when they got there, evidently they couldn't find the pasture that they wanted, so they went on further north, 20 more miles. And now Jacob comes to Joseph and asks if he will go check on the brothers. And Jacob, uh, Joseph says, Yes, Dad, I'll be happy to do that. And he strikes out for Shechem. It would have taken, taken him several days to get there. And when he gets there, he's wandering around the field looking to see if he sees his dad's flocks and any of his brothers. And a man sees him and asks him the object of his search. And he tells him he's looking for his brothers. And the man said, Oh, yeah, I heard those guys say that they're moving on to Dothan. So now Joseph has to cover another 20 miles looking for his brothers. That would have probably taken about at least a day longer. And finally, he catches up with them. In verse 18, they saw the boy coming a long way off. And what did they see? Well, they recognized that coat that they hated because it reminded them of their hatred and jealousy of Joseph. And so they decide that once and for all, they will get rid of those dreams. And then they won't have to hear about them. And then they will be certain that the dreams don't come true. Because they don't want to ever take a chance of having to bow down to this younger brother who seems to be kind of arrogant to them. To us, we would say he's 17. Maybe he's not being as wise as he should. But there doesn't seem to be any malice in his heart. One way to ensure the fact they'd never hear of it again is just put him to death. So that's what they decide to do. And they call him a dreamer. And that word in the Hebrew implies a worthless fellow who just sits around daydreaming all the time. That would not have been Joseph, but that was the perspective they had on their younger brother. Now we see Reuben rising to the occasion here. He was Leah's oldest son, as we said. He lost his birthright through immorality. Joseph was Rachel's oldest son. So it looks like Joseph is going to be given the family birthright in the place of Reuben. So why did Reuben decide to step into this conflict to rescue his little brother? We don't know everything about that, but Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, that he, Reuben, might rescue him out of their father's hands and restore him to their father. Now, maybe he had truly repented of his immorality. And he wanted to use this occasion to exercise some moral leadership in the family. We would hope that uh, that might be the reason for what he did. At any rate, he had a plan. If he could get Joseph down in this dry cistern where they couldn't hurt him, then he would come back later and pull him out of the pit and return him to his dad. A noble thought. We don't know what Reuben is doing, at the time that the brothers decide to do some other things, but when he gets back, he is shocked at what has happened. So Joseph arrives and they strip him of his coat and they throw him down in the pit. But uh, this matter of attempted murder doesn't seem to uh, defer their appetites too much. So they sit down to have some lunch. And while they are partaking of their lunch, with Joseph pleading with them out of the pit, they see a caravan coming by. Now, why did God have to get the brothers up to Shechem and then 20 miles further on up to Dothan? Because that was on the trade route and God knew precisely when this caravan would be coming by And he knew that that would be a free ride for Joseph down to Egypt. And God had planned that he would be bought by Potiphar, captain of the royal guard. And in Potiphar's house, Joseph could learn all of the protocol of the ruling aristocracy of the land. And he was going to need that because years later he would be serving in Pharaoh's court. It's an amazing story. Now Joseph can't see all that right at this moment and he's just pleading for his life and to be returned back to his brothers. His brothers, of course, can't see it either. But Judah comes up with an even better idea. Why shed the boy's blood? Let's sell him as a slave to these Ishmaelite traders that were coming along at that time. Now, if you look in your Bible, you'll see Ishmaelites in verse 25 and Midianites in verse 28. Both Ishmael and Midian were sons of Abraham and their names are frequently used interchangeably because they were always together. So I'm sure there were some Ishmaelites and maybe some Midianites or maybe there was one group and another group right behind that, Uh, but they were pretty close to each other. So we don't have an error here in what the Scripture says. Now, back in Hebron, what are the brothers going to do? Well, Reuben comes back after they have sold Joseph into slavery, and he's on his way to Egypt wondering what in the world is going on. Everything that he had known good in his life has been suddenly jerked out from under him in one afternoon. But he still believes in the Lord. And he still trusts that God has a plan. And he is with the Lord, so the Lord is with Joseph. Reuben comes back and sees that Joseph is not there and thinks maybe they have killed the boy. But uh, it's told what they have done with him. And they decide that they would take Joseph's coat and they would dip it in some blood, the blood of a goat, and they would take it back to the father and say, "Is this? could this be Joseph's coat? And they'll just let him draw his own conclusion. Do you remember that decades before, Jacob had used a goat to deceive his father Isaac. And now his sons are using a goat to deceive him. Be sure that you're not a deceiver because it always seems to come back around where you're the one being deceived. Now let's consider the providence of God. When we come to any kind of discussion of God's sovereignty, or as we call it, God's providence, there's something that we need to remember. Now when we were at the middle school, we could illustrate that pretty well because we could close those curtains that were there on the stage... And I would still be behind the curtain and I could be talking to you through the microphone, but you couldn't see what I was doing back there. I would still be doing some things, but you couldn't see it. And that's kind of the way it is with God's sovereignty. He's behind the curtain. You can't see what He's doing, but He's working things out so that it's going to work out according to His plan. And the good news is, God can take all the ingredients of life and stir them up into an omelet that is going to be really good. It's going to be good for you, He says, and it's going to bring glory to Him. So that's what He's doing. How could the brothers' misbehavior bring good? Because they're doing bad. Well, God specializes in bringing good out of bad. And He wants us to be that same way too. He wants us to trust Him. He wants us to be encouraging. He wants us to give others a word of Scripture that's going to point them towards something positive rather than all of the bad things that seem to be happening. And there were plenty of bad things in Jacob's family that Joseph could have been thinking about. But evidently, he's trusting in the Lord on His way down to Egypt. Only the Lord can straighten out affliction and tribulation and pain and sorrow and sadness and hardship and persecution and injustice. Only the Lord can straighten those things out. We need to work to help in those areas, but unless we have the power of God, unless we are working according to His Spirit through the direction of His Word, we won't be able to do it there is an interesting verse that we see in Ecclesiastes. Consider the work of God for who can make straight what He has made crooked? And the answer is nobody. But He can make it straight again no matter what it is. But the work He's doing, we need to understand, may span years and decades and even generations. And we see that Joseph is going to be in Egypt for a long number of years, at least to a 17-year-old boy, as God is preparing him for the great work that he has Joseph to do. What does God have for Joseph down there? We're going to see. Now you might say, well, I can't see anything good in my life right now. All I can see is just a lot of bad. Well, maybe you're looking at the negative aspects of things. But in all of our lives, there would be many positive things to consider. We live in the United States. And beyond that, we live in Texas. We ought to be rejoicing in all the good that God has done for us. Just to be able to come together and worship, in freedom, to be able to enjoy the beautiful music, All the things that God has given us. We want to focus on those things and not just the negative things. If you focus on the bad part, it's going to be bad, no doubt about it. The question is, can you really trust a sovereign God? Will you trust Him? I'm not saying just fold your hands and wait to see if He's going to do something, because He wants us to do our responsibility. And our responsibility is to reflect His character, His attributes, the actions of Christ. We're supposed to be like Christ as we go around doing His work here on this earth according as outlined in the Bible. And as we do those things, our responsibility, then we can trust God to work through that. So we're not just idling away our time waiting for God to do something. We are waiting on the Lord, but we're busy during that time. And I can assure you that whatever God is going to do is going to come on time, on His time. Perhaps not my time, but His time. But until then, just like the Canaanite woman, just like the widow woman and the judge, just like the man who had a guest come at midnight, we're going to keep on asking Him for those things that we are praying according to His Word. Where did the caravan of traders take Joseph, and how does this illustrate the providence of God? God had to get Joseph down to Egypt, according to His plan, because that's where He's going to use him in a mighty way. There's going to be a worldwide famine, as you read in the scriptures, and all the people are going to be starving, except that Joseph has another dream. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Pharaoh has a dream, two dreams, and Joseph interprets those dreams. And you remember how Joseph went down and helped them to prepare for the famine. But here's the amazing thing. Because of the famine, Jacob's family comes down to Egypt. Canaan is the promised land, but they come down to Egypt because they are about 72 souls at that time And they can't protect themselves. God can protect them. Sometimes He does it supernaturally. Sometimes He uses means. But there are a lot of warlike tribes in the land of Canaan. And you remember that uh, Jacob's name was odious because of some things that had happened along the way. So God decides that He's going to take this family, Israel's family... And he's going to bring them down to Egypt, give them the best of land there, provide for them in every way. Their son now is the prime minister of the land. They get the best of everything. But he's going to use that to protect them as they're growing from a family into a nation. The Egyptian army was the mightiest on earth in that day. And nobody's going to be coming in to attack this family because they're down there safe in Egypt. Egypt we've seen that before way back in Genesis 15 then God said to Abram Abraham know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years and also the nation whom they serve I will judge afterward they shall come out with great possessions a little prophecy there of what God's going to do Well, none of the brothers suspected anything like this. Joseph couldn't have imagined this. Uh, Jacob certainly would never have guessed what God was doing. But God is right on time for the caravan coming through in Dauphin. And Joseph gets a free ride down to Egypt to begin to prepare for this great work that God has for him to do there. Now there's another aspect of God's providence in this remarkable book, the Bible. And he has provided for us a number of types in the Bible. Types, T-Y-P-S. Type is derived from the Greek word tupos. It occurs 16 times in the New Testament. And it's translated in ways like pattern, fashion, or manner. The general idea that is common would be likeness. This is in the likeness of something else. And God teaches us some things through that. Here's an example of a type. Adam is a type. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of Him that was to come. Adam and Christ are bound together by their similarity. They are both fully men. One is fully God. One sinned. But the other then came as the remedy for that sin. There's some similarities. There are some differences. Adam is even referred to as the first Adam. Some other words that are used that are similar are shadow, parable, pattern, or copy. According to the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, it says a type is a picture or object lesson that God uses to teach his people about His grace and saving power. The Mosaic system was a sort of kindergarten in which God's people were trained in divine things, by which they were led to look for better things to come. Now some Bible scholars try to press the typology too far and they get out of history and established fact and get into mystery and mysticism. But what we want to do is take a look at the fact of how Joseph... And some of the factors surrounding his life his life point to Christ. So we'll see those things that have been summarized by Dr. Herbert Leupold in his book on Genesis. First, Joseph was the beloved son of his father, even as was Christ. He was sent by the father to the brothers who were struggling in sin and wrong thinking. That was evidenced by their hatred and envy and their behavior toward their brother Joseph. He, being innocent, was sold by his brothers for 20 pieces of silver. That would have been the price of a young slave, a boy, or young man. Christ, of course, was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph, as a result of the malicious plot of his brothers, became the savior of strangers, and in a sense, the savior of the entire world through the famine down in Egypt. In prison, Joseph found himself between two malefactors. You remember there was the uh, butler and, or the uh, the um, cupbearer of the king, and then there was the baker. And uh, Christ on the cross was crucified between two criminals. Joseph predicted the death of one. And he predicted that the other man who had the dream in prison would be restored to his position. Jesus saved the one of the criminals that was on the cross, but the other got his just condemnation, even though they both had committed the same crime. Joseph asked the one who was spared to remember him, the cupbearer, when he was restored to honor. The one whom Jesus saved asked him on the cross to be remembered when Jesus came into his kingdom. Joseph's brothers were later judged for their treachery, but they experienced the victory of forgiving love as Joseph forgave them later when they were found out. Judah was willing to become surety for Benjamin in a spirit of self-sacrifice. You remember when they went down to Egypt, one of the trips, Christ was willing to sacrifice Himself on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And finally, Jacob, old Papa Jacob, experienced joy and revitalization when he learned that his beloved son, thought to be dead, was alive and prospering and had gone on ahead to prepare a place for him and his family down in Egypt. Imagine the joy that Jacob must have experienced But imagine the joy of the apostles and others in the resurrection on that first resurrection day. One writer expressed it like this. God in the types of the Old Testament was teaching His children their letters. In the New Testament, He is teaching them to put the letters together. And they find that the letters, arranged them as they will, always spell Christ and nothing but Christ. Now, as you look back over your life today, does it look like you're one of those guys like Jacob who is trying to run things on your own, according to your own plan? And your wrestling with God would be to try to get him to approve your plan instead of wrestling with your own self will? Well, if you are one of those people, today it would be a good day to consider. Taking your hands off your life in the sense that you're trying to do your own thing and coming to God and asking Him what would be His thing. That's what it means to become a Christian. To take my hands off of my own life, recognize that I'm a sinner, ask forgiveness for my sin, and invite Christ to take over my life. I'll be glad to get in the back seat and be the passenger. And he can take over the driver's seat and drive this life where he wants it to go. Are you willing to say, not my will, but your will be done? That's what a Christian says. Not my will, but thy will be done. Sometimes we struggle with that, but as we are energized through the power of the Spirit, God will give us the ability to say that in our hearts and mean it. I would encourage you today, as I would close in prayer, that if you're trying to hang on to some things in your life and trying to force it into the people, things, and circumstances that are there, this would be a good time to turn it all over to the Lord. Maybe there's some things that you would need to see happen that you think should happen. Maybe they're not happening. Maybe the very things you don't want to see happening are the ones that are happening. But God has a plan in all of that. And He wants us to be the clay in the potter's hands that He can mold us and make us into the image of His Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this amazing story of the life of Joseph. And how you would take the evil in his life that others are perpetrating against him and turn that to great good for many people, including Joseph himself and his family and even those who had cursed him and who hated him. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that that's what you've done for us. We are the ones who crucified You in the sense that our sins sent You to the cross. But we thank You that You loved us. You have chosen us, You said, even before the foundation of the earth. And You have a plan for us that will result in our good and in Your glory. So we pray that we might have confidence in You. We pray for uh, individuals here today who are struggling, perhaps with circumstances in their lives. Perhaps it would be in the area of a family, a mixed-up family, a family with problems. Maybe it would be in with the matter of things that need to work out. A job, a location, something else. Uh, Lord, help us to persevere in prayer, but help us to trust You in all of these matters. And I would pray if there's someone here today who is trying to hang on to the controls of life, that uh, this might be a day to turn everything over to You and trust You. Lord, You've made us. You've made us for Your purposes that we might honor and glorify You. And we know that Your plans are better than our plans. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So give us courage to trust You To lean not to our own understanding, but acknowledge You in all of our ways. And know that You will direct our paths. Lord, as we come to this time of prayer, we pray that Your Spirit would move among us and remind us of things about which we need to pray. We ask these things now in the mighty name of Jesus and for His sake. Amen.